from Freie Universität Berlin, I'm Jonas Benz, and this is the Affect and Colonialism podcast. Since Jair Bolsonaro has become president of Brazil, old sentiments of white supremacy are on the rise. Indigenous and black movements articulate their protest with new forms of media communication. In essence, Brazil's political discourse remains divided along colonial lines. Today, we talk with communication studies scholar Deborah Medeiros about the effective politics of media in Bolsonaro, Brazil. Deborah, welcome. Thank you, it's great to be here. Deborah, there seems to be a new species of authoritarian president. And when we um, look for examples, the names that are often mentioned are, of course, Donald Trump, Recep Tayyip Erdogan, um, Vladimir Putin, but also Jair Bolsonaro from Brazil. What, how would you describe how has political discourse changed in Brazil since Bolsonaro has become president? Yes, it's a, that's an interesting question about the, all those intricacies of authoritarian regimes. I used to joke of a Turkish colleague that it was really the internationale of toxic, toxic masculinity. So uh, this mobilizes a lot of affects, definitely, on the media. I think all of them use media very cleverly for their own goals. In Bolsonaro's uh, specific case, he mobilizes a lot of colonial affects. So right supremacy is a very strong um, structuring element in his strategy, in his political and media strategy. So when he talks, for example, about the Amazon region, he always talks about those frames that were very present in the dictatorship until the 80s in Brazilian um, discourse, that the Amazon region is a place that uh, Brazilians have to conquer, have to defend against uh, the other neighboring countries. It's kind of like a wild west in their minds, no? Uh, the indigenous population isn't very much mentioned, or when they are mentioned, they are mentioned as a population that needs to be civilized, between quotation marks, that's his perspective. And he has very simplistic views about what an indigenous person should look like. So because some communities already wear Western clothes, for example, he says, well, this, those aren't indigenous people anymore. So very simplistic frames about what is an indigenous person, what is nature and the country sovereignty. This is something very strong. His family was also involved in mining. And this is also something that's interesting because mining actually is a huge industry with huge machines. It actually looks like uh, logging uh, companies work or like a construction site, a mining site, actually. But the way Bolsonaro mobilizes imaginations about mining, it's more like this, this man alone at nature with kind of like a, a walking, working by the river and finding gold in the river. So it's very romanticized, this perspective of the white settler in Amazon trying his luck in a way. So I think he yeah, ma manages to connect a lot to feelings of nostalgia, to feelings of people who were raised in the dictatorship and kind of try to unlearn those uh, feelings, the socialization in the 2000s with the left-wing government that invested a lot in 
memory work for transitional justice that invested a lot in diversity uh, discourses, but of course now they are being told by Bolsonaro that it's okay to feel, to be racist, to be sexist and misogynistic, like they learned in the dictatorship. So what you're saying is that um, Bolsonaro's political rhetoric is directed towards uh, the white population in Brazil, and uh, it mobilizes colonial affects in so far as the, this rhetoric systematically devaluates indigenous people. Um, so if we then think of this colonial situation, of course, I think um, the heritage of slavery plays a major part as well. So what is Bolsonaro's rhetoric towards black Brazilians? Bolsonaro became very famous through racist statements as well against black uh, Brazilians. He had an interview with a black singer before he became president uh, in which he connected black women to, um, yeah, to, uh, how could I say that? He said his son would never marry a black woman because he's a decent person. So this is the kind of statement that he has about black people, and this isn't the only one. I think he, again, he talks to a certain middle class that doesn't necessarily see itself as racist, but see itself as having the right to have people working for them, for them at their houses for very little money. So that's semi-slavery. Uh, what we had in the 90s, for example, were people fleeing from poverty, for example, from the northeast to the southeast, who basically worked for food and housing at houses of middle-class people. And those were often uh, people of color, black people, people with indigenous heritage. And uh, during the years of the left-wing government, there was a social ascension of a lot of people from uh, poorer backgrounds who were often racialized people as well. And this uh, mobilized affects in the middle class as well. So you had people complaining that uh, airports now had too many poor people who could now afford to fly. Uh, you had people complaining that uh, uh, house uh, help uh, were being too lazy because people weren't agreeing anymore to working for nothing because now they had a choice. A lot of people sent their kids to better schools. You had a social ascension also through education. And this was something that was a deep, um, yeah, there was a feeling of being robbed of something in the white middle class that Bolsonaro kind of uh, mobilizes. His economy minister said that the son of the doorkeeper shouldn't be able to fly to Europe. So this is explicitly addressing those feelings that were kind of latent during the left-wing government and just um, saying it's okay to say this kind of stuff, to think this kind of stuff. Uh, and when it comes from somebody in power, it gains a strength that wasn't there before. Yeah. And for these messages of white supremacy, um, Bolsonaro uses um, his access to mainstream media. So it is also so that indigenous and black movements in Brazil counter these um, discourses and resist these systematic devaluation and this politics of white supremacy through their own media politics. How are they doing this? And that's a great question. There is a lot of alternative media, but also social media is a very important component in this situation. We have, for example, influencers from the black and indigenous movement that have a large following and really do an educational work towards their audience. So for example, we have Alice Patashaw, 
who is an indigenous woman who has a lot of followers on Instagram and Twitter. And she explicitly talks about everyday life in her community. She lives sometimes there and sometimes in a big city. So she talks about her experience as an indigenous woman in both kinds of uh, uh, places in Brazil. She talks about how it is to be an LGBT woman in this uh, in an indigenous community, how is the approach to nature. So she really tries to show this knowledge forms uh, that are grounded in indigenous knowledge uh, to her followers on social media, and she she's quite successful about it. Um, then we have uh, also a lot of uh, media, especially in the urban centers that are originated at slums, and. Um, I think it's often in Brazil, this intersection between class and race is very strong. So a lot of the people who live in slums are people of color, have indigenous descent or are black people. And um, those, um, those media, they cover especially police violence against black people. We had uh, a lot of killings in the last couple of years. And uh, I think I, there is a turn on how this is being covered. Before, it was kind of like an accident of nature, like traditional media was covering it as though it wasn't avoidable, that police just goes, storms a favela and shoots to all sides without seeing who they are meeting. And this was kind of seen as a side effect of those kind of police operations before. And we have already had Back then, children, innocent people dying about, um, from this. And now, in the latest cases of this kind of police violence, I think also because uh, alternative media like Voice das Comunidades in Rio, they really had a strategy of showing what this does to the people, to the place, what it feels like. They also talk about having feelings of uh, fear and anxiety of being in your home and knowing that uh, a bullet can just meet you even though you are inside during a police operation. So they make it very palpable what it feels like to be in a place that it's being stormed by police that doesn't care for your life. And I think traditional media are covering this in a more empathetic way. We had recent, the most recent case was of a pregnant woman, Kathleen Romeo, who died during such a police operation uh, through a stray bullet. Um, and the coverage was very empath empathetic about this. They interviewed her family, they showed a lot of uh, pictures. So I think this is a turn that also takes place because alternative media and influencers have been so vocal about this for so many years, like decades, I think, already. The way you describe these um, mainstream discourse of white supremacy and their counter discourses, it really feels as if the colonial constellation um, is still very dominant in Brazilian political discourse. You have basically three groups. You have the descendants of white settlers, you have the descendants of black enslaved people, and you have um, indigenous communities. And these three groups um, are basically still um, competing uh, with each other and um, trying to either put forth a colonial politics of affect or resist it. So how would you say, is Brazil still fighting in the framework of a colonial politics of affect? Yeah, I think uh, especially black and indigenous people and also progressive people, a lot of progressive people as well, they want to overcome those frames, no? They want to have more egalitarian um, relationships amongst uh, people with different backgrounds. Um, 
They want to imagine futures that aren't structured through colonial um, uh, underpinnings. Uh, but this is being resisted, of course, from people who profit from it. And um, it's also being framed as communism. We have this specter of communism, Latin America, since the Cold War. Uh, and uh, it's very successful still to mobilize people. Whenever there are elections in the region, also in Brazil, Venezuela and Cuba come as kind of like phantoms of what a country shouldn't become. If you elect somebody who's left-wing, this is the future. This is their frame to preserve colonial uh, structures in society, I think, because if you try to advance emancipatory views of how it could be different, for example, uh, the Landless Movement in Brazil is one of the greatest producers of organic food, and they are one of the greatest producers of food for the uh, internal uh, market in Brazil. And uh, what we have is agribusiness just saying we are the ones who are advancing economy and food sovereignty in Brazil, although they are the ones actually destroying the Amazon and exporting. So enforcing this kind of colonial relationship to the global north, just providing commodities and not really focusing on the development in the country, but actually destroying what we have for short-term pro profit in a way. So you have like different models as well of development in a way, competing against each other. Yeah. Yeah, this model um, of extractive agro-business that you're describing is awkwardly familiar to the um, colonial politics uh, or the colonial economy of um, exporting particular colonial products um, from um, Latin America to um, Europe, sugar, for instance. And so that, that also seems as if there is a connection between these racializing discourses um, that we hear um, from um, the Bolsonaro government and a certain colonial economic model, these discourses are also there to justify. Definitely, yes. And this also extends to his economic policies. Uh, in Portuguese, there is this uh, word to describe it, entreguista, so you give everything away to the uh, global powers, in a way, to the global north. And this is also what he does. Like it's about land in a way. The Amazon is a place that uh, is being illegally ex uh, exploited by settlers who are going there and invading indigenous reserves, for example. But it's also about companies as well. So Brazil has a lot, has a lot of state companies that are important for the infrastructure. And now the latest development in Brazil is that he is trying to push as many privatizations as possible. And this will be, this means that those companies will be sold mostly to um, foreigner, foreigner uh, companies and, con and big conglomerates. So this is also one part of this, of trying to, of course, there is a, na a national elite that profits from it. This is, happens so often from those kinds of privatizations. But in the end, you are really giving away the infrastructure. We already had this before. But this is much stronger now. This is really one of the things that he's pushing forward. And this is also a form of uh, colonial policies of saying Brazil is unable to, to manage those kinds of companies. It should be uh, externalized to the big conglomerates who are successful globally and so on. What you're describing about Brazil um, reminds us um, to very 
many cases, very many national situations in the Americas, more generally, um, that there seems to be a trend that the, the kind of racialization politics that emerge in colonialism, separating whites, blacks, and indigenous um, people is at work more strongly maybe than a few years ago and that there is a racialization of politics. And when we look to the United States, for instance, this is also very visible. And um, there, is a, there is a feeling, I think, in the political left that this racialization um, is dangerous. So there is the idea that, also on the left, that identity politics, basically black movements, indigenous movements, that they are somewhat dangerous for the um, for the political discourse in the country and is only serving the political right. Um, in North America, for example, for example, Bernie Sanders would stand for such a view that you need really to talk about class rather than race. What do you think about this um, model or leftist model to counter this? problematic racialization of politics. Yes, I think this is actually a colonial afterlife in left-wing uh, politicians and activists who argue for this. Uh, it's like denying that whiteness provides people with other opportunities. Um, I don't, at least in Brazil, I don't know any people of color advancing this point. I can imagine there are, of course, exceptions. But I think it says a lot that it's often pushed by white people. You see I'm already bringing race into it very much from the beginning. But I believe we can't uh, ignore this. Actually, in Brazil, race wasn't so present as something that people addressed directly. Of course, racism was everywhere. If you had a black person entering a store, they would be followed or it would be questioned if they could afford to consume certain things. If you had a white person entering a store, no matter how poorly dressed they were, they would be differently addressed, for example. But this was never something that was acknowledged as racism from either side, uh, at least not so vocally as today. So I think it's important to acknowledge that for many people, this everyday experiences that have been make, they have been making for generations, they need to be talked about. They need to, the people who are, uh, um, who suffer discrimination due to race, they need to have the space to really talk about it, what it feels like uh, to suffer this everyday kind of discrimination. And I think um, the left has to listen uh, because it really plays a role. It's not just about um, class, I think, no matter how much you ascend, if you are a person of color in Brazil, it's still put into question if you belong in certain spaces. So I think this has to be talked about inside the left very openly, and then we have to make alliances to um, really try to advance the points that benefit everybody. But if we try to shut it down, uh, we will just have like conflicts inside of the left, and then there will be no alternative for Bolsonaro and there will be no alternative to Bolsonaro. So I think it's important to really acknowledge those other structuring elements uh, uh, together with class. So race and class in Brazil, they walk hand in hand, and it's important to see that it's different being poor and white and being poor and black or indigenous in Brazil, and I think everywhere. Yeah. So that means you are skeptical that um, this 
racialization of politics can simply be changed in the political discourse by finding some kind of um, economic or class narrative that is um, that makes people understand that actually economic issues are much more important than identity issues. Um, you are skeptical about this approach. Um, and that also then begs the question, is, you know, this discussion we are having in the political sphere, is it race or is it class? And how should these two things be reconciled in political discourse? Is this actually... Um, leading anywhere or should we find other ways to describe politics of inequality? Yeah, I think we need other narratives definitely to really see, yeah, to be intersectional in a way, to really see there are different things that are parallel to each other and just as bad. Um, so uh, hierarchizing, I think it's very strongly, it has some colonial underpinnings as well, no? putting something on top and everything else is kind of subjected to this. So I think it's more productive, I think, seeing things that run parallel to each other and um, really finding ways that people can advance different policies that kind of like address different problems parallel to each other because there are so many problems right now and we can't uh, like uh, list them and go through them one after the other but kind of see how things work parallel to each other. Like for example, the affirmative action policies for universities in Brazil, they are very intersectional. So they look at, you can declare your race, uh, your ethnic background, and you have certain quotas. But you also have quotas for trans people, for example, in some universities. You also have quotas for people who went to public schools, which are structurally less competitive for this kind of um, exam to enter university. And even the race quotas, they are connected in the, the quotas for trans people, they are connected to your income or the income of your family. So I think that's a good example of how all of those things, those inclusion policies, they can think about different elements together. So I think that's the way forward. We can also think about utopian uh, policies that address different problems at the same time. The way we have um, had this conversation now, the frame that we chose for it, namely to talk about colonialism in this context, is also not um, very usual, I think. Uh, you talk about racism, um, or, um, or economic marginalization often as different things rather than something that has to do with the long history of colonialism as well. So the question is then, or to phrase it differently, you said um, that there is this close connection between the politics of economic marginalization of the Bolsonaro government and their racializing language. And so, is, is there maybe a potential in talking about colonialism and um, highlighting the entanglements of racialization and economic marginalization that are so visible in colonialism um, and maybe draw from these kind of thinking to have a more productive approach to, um, to um, come to a better political or, or yeah, more productive political discourse in Brazil and elsewhere, maybe by saying we must decolonize um, political discourse. Yeah, that's a great point. I think 
uh, again at universities with this affirmative action. It was actually after my time at university, but I still follow uh, what's happening there. But through this diversification of who uh, goes to university, who becomes a professor as well, there is a an ascension of decolonial theory inside of Brazilian academia that really hope, helps us think about this. There are people researching how to decolonize law, for example, and abolitionist discussions are also very strong, much like in the USA about uh, defunding police, uh, thinking about different models of community safety. Uh, so this is very present in certain groups. I don't think it's still a major mainstream discourse. You didn't see necessarily Lula pushing for it, which is probably the most um, successful candidate against Bolsonaro right now. But you see allegiances happening that kind of points towards this direction. You had a presidential candidate last uh, time, Guilherme Boulos, with his vice um, uh, president candidate. It was an indigenous woman and very recognized uh, uh, indigenous leader, Sonia Guajajara. And those allegiances together, somebody who was fighting for housing in urban centers and uh, an indigenous person who was fighting to defend uh, indigenous peoples everywhere. This was very productive, I think, because they both, through their positioning, had different perspectives, but the policies they were trying to push would address different issues at the same time. So I think that's the way forward, maybe having different people working together to push a different perspective to really decolonize politics is also about who is there on top as well. No, not just that, but how are decisions made, who is inside governments and so on. So I think it's an important point, definitely. Deborah, thank you very much. Thank you, Jonas, it was a pleasure. <laughs>